Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group. Why government is failing in the digital age and other takeaways from Jen Palka's new book. And replacing passwords with multi-factor authentication. It's Thursday, July 13th, 2023. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast where you'll hear the latest news and trends facing government leaders. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Billy Mitchell. Here's what's happening now. The federal government is responding to an intrusion into Microsoft's cloud services that has affected some federal agencies. A sophisticated Chinese hacking operation is said to have gained access to email accounts associated with roughly two dozen organizations that include a number of U.S. government entities and the private email accounts of individuals associated with those targeted organizations. Microsoft described the breach in a blog post Tuesday and said that a customer informed the company about the hacking activity on June 16th. Microsoft researchers believe the hackers gained access to email data about a month earlier on May 15th. The Federal Aviation Administration is exploring turning to the private sector to operate its embattled notice-to-air missions system, also known as NOTAMS. It's the notification tool that the agency uses to share critical safety information with pilots before flights take off, warning them of closed-off airspace, dangerous weather patterns, and other hazards. You may remember hearing about the NOTAM system earlier this year when it failed after contractors inadvertently deleted files while working with the NOTAM databases, an issue that ultimately forced the FAA to halt flight takeoffs across the country. You can read more about these stories and much more at fedscoop.com. There's a new book captivating audiences across the federal technology space, and it's getting rave reviews. It's called Recoding America, Why Government is Failing in the Digital Age and How We Can Do Better. Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella called it a compelling argument to focus on the underappreciated art of delivery in our digital era. And former Google CEO Eric Schmidt said, every American who cares about our democracy should read this book. Former U.S. Deputy CTO and founder of Code for America, Jen Palka, wrote the book based on her intimate firsthand knowledge of working in and with government agencies for most of the last two decades to improve digital service delivery. And in it, she concludes that there are much deeper issues that are leading to the failure of the U.S. government in the digital age. Or as the book's synopsis puts it, we must stop trying to move the government we have today onto new technology and instead consider what it would mean to truly recode American government. I sat down with Palka to talk about the purpose of the book, who she hopes will read it, and her thoughts on the current state of federal technology. Jen, welcome to The Daily Scoop. Thanks for having me. Your new book is called Recoding America, Why Government is Failing in the Digital Age and How We Can Do Better. So let's get started with a softball. Um, give us the Cliff Notes thesis behind that. Why is government failing? How do you address that in the book? Well, it's funny because, of course, it seems like it's very much about technology, and that's what people know from my career. But I'm really talking, I think, about something more foundational, which is this gap between the policy makers and the implementation. And now, of course, digital is a part of implementation, but we've always had that gap. And ultimately, you know, my the book is a call to bring policy and implementation together and have policy and implementation teams work together better. And I think that will, of course, help with all of the digital stuff, but it's it's really not as much about digital as it is how government really works. It's about delivering. 
It's about delivering. Exactly. And I think it's also a call to, you know, beyond this community to the general public to hold their elected leaders accountable for delivery, not just for policy. I'm glad you mentioned that because it's one of the thoughts that occurred to me. You know, a lot of people, we've seen a lot of books that come out and it's sort of the biz- intersection of business and technology. And it's it's it, it's for a certain audience. And I'm curious who you wrote the book for, and if it is intended for the general public to hold people accountable. Who did you write it for when you were thinking about, you know, sort of delivering the end book um, in, in, in so much as, you know, you want to paint a picture of this government ecosystem that's not working? Who do you want to see that? Well, you know, for years, I would be at like a cocktail party, and someone would say, you know, especially people sort of sort of government adjacent really or politics adjacent. And they'd be like, well, you've seen this stuff. Why is this not working? Why has that been so bad? And I just started to get to the point where I'd be like, I really can't answer that in like a cocktail party setting. I'm going to write a book and then you can read the book. (laughs) Um, So I did want to write it for the general public. Um, And of course, you know, you know, we'll see how many people of the general public pick up a book with a, you know, American flag and a QR code on the cover. <laughs> um, but in writing, I think for, uh, you know, accessibly, um, I really am hoping to hit the people who are not doing the work. I mean, a lot of people have written to me to say, I feel seen by this. Like if you work in government technology, like you're really expressing something to people that needs to be expressed. And thank you for speaking to my own experience. And I'm really glad for that. But I hope it reaches the people who can shape the environment in which we all work and make it a little bit easier to do our jobs. So, yeah, I mean, I'd like to spend some time on the Hill. I'd like to spend some time in places like OPM and see if the ideas resonate with them so that we can alleviate some of these challenges that we face. Curious, and, and maybe you don't have this right off the cuff, but is there anybody who has read it that surprised you that, you know, isn't the one of those people that, you know, is sort of preaching to the choir that those innovators that are like, a, you know, they feel seen, but somebody that maybe surprised you uh, when they reached out and, and said they read the book? Um. Well, here in California, you know, it, it does span federal, state, and local government, and, you um, here in California, a former assembly member um, read it and came to me and said, wow, you know, I now see how the things I did as a legislator, you know, were maybe not the right things and how I think the legislature now needs to shift its focus. So that was sort of the most exciting. I'm waiting for the time a member of Congress tells me that, but so far we've got it at the state legislature level. And because yeah. I really, I really do want them to see things differently, and you know, point their attention in different places. Well, you'll have to grab a couple hundred copies and deliver them to uh, the seats on Capitol Hill. Well, the wonderful folks at Pop Fox have been doing that for me. The Pop Fox Foundation—they uh, held a great event at the Library of Congress on June sixth, and have been distributing them. So uh, there, there is some of that happening, and I'm very grateful. That's great. Well, one of the things I love about the book, um, and we were talking about this earlier before we we started recording, but it gives really concrete examples and sort of insider stories on how the government is, you know, failing in the digital age, as the the title refers to. And at the federal level, you know, we've seen some major cases of that in the last decade: healthcare.gov, uh, the OPM breach, solar winds, to name a few. And 
almost always uh, it seems like those lead to direct reaction or reactionary policy or organizational changes that are made. So I'm curious, uh, you know, it's it seems a bit cyclical to me that the government, at least on the tech side, uh, goes in such reactionary fashion. I'm wondering how the government can be a bit more proactive in in doing some of those things. And I think your book gets at that a bit, but, um, you know, getting out of the cycle of just reacting and instead thinking a bit ahead of these issues that it faces. Well, one really practical thing is that, you know, our oversight apparatus is focused exclusively on failures. And, you know, that is, well, A, pretty negative. And yes, then we end up sort of increasing the risk aversion, right? Because people are more and more afraid. Where is the role of oversight, be it legislative or executive branch or in the administrative agencies, in lifting up the positive? I tell a story, you know, kind of close to the end of the book about a wonderful public servant at Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services named Yudira Sanchez, and just the ways in which she takes, you know, bold interpretations of law and policy and regulation and, 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 you know, gets the outcome that Congress intended better, faster, and cheaper. Like, I think that we should be spending a lot of time finding, you know, the thousands and thousands of Yudiras, lifting them up and telling their stories so that you know, public servants know that's what look good looks like. That is what Congress and, you know, uh, uh, White House and everybody want me to do. Um, but I also, you know, I talk in the end of the book also about funding, talent, and oversight. Um, so, you know, that's obviously a specific thing in oversight, but there's this whole area where my my new metaphor for this is like, you know, if you're a gardener, um, you can plant seeds and hope something grows in the soil. And I think that's what our legislature legislators do um, or other policymakers. Like I'm going to get this specific policy, you know, and then I plant that seed in the, you know, the soil of the bureaucracy and hope it grows. But, you know, ultimately if you're not feeding that soil and, you know, fertilizing it and watering it, I'm sorry, because in some ways it's not the best <laughs> metaphor, but like you can't keep planting stuff. You can't keep asking the civil service to deliver results. If you are making, you know, it's so hard for people to hire. You spend so much time on compliance, like all of these things that we, well, I want legislators and others to turn their attention to, you know, that that's really where I think we should be moving away from that reactivity and into, wait a minute, how I'm, I'm a steward of this garden. What should I be doing to enrich the soil? How do I actually help the civil service do their jobs? I'm glad you mentioned the hiring because it's, you know, somewhere I wanted to go in our conversation because it's it's so critically important to mm -hmm. absolutely everything um, in, in that happens in the government, whether it's tech related or not. Um, but in the tech sector specifically, there's yeah. a, a massive shortage of talent. And I, I'm curious your thoughts on um, how the government can, you know, enhance and foster the federal workforce and, you know, whether it's improving hiring or just better incentivizing, you know, the civil service. Uh, what are some thoughts? I know you address this a lot in the book, um, but but how can the government focus on that? Because that really is the first step in a lot of cases to improving what the government does. Um, so I just was around weekend before last in DC and, you know, I had the privilege of going and talking to what, probably seven different agencies and everywhere I went, I asked, what is your biggest problem? This is at the state level too, by the way, 
every one of them says hiring is the number one. And some of them say hiring is problem one, two, and three. Mm-hmm. Um, it is absolutely what we should be far, far more focused on. Um, Biden administration should be focused on it. Congress should be focused on it. Obviously, OPM is focused on it. And OPM has some great initiatives like SNEQA, uh, if your listeners know of subject matter expert qualifying assessments. Sure. Um, I'm encouraged to hear that that is starting to scale. I guess my answer would be, you know, if you look at how SNEQA came about, it it arose from very disciplined analysis of what is the actual law and policy governing this, you know, the hiring process versus what are the processes that have accreted upon that law and policy, you know, what of this is, can be challenged and redone in different ways. And, you know, how are we really honoring the intent of the law and policy? Um, and there's a lot more sneakwas that can happen, um, but they really have to come from a place of, you know, what here can't change because it's the law and what here can we redo in ways that are better, faster and cheaper and get us the talent that we need. So I'd say, you know, one practical thing is, more teams like the SMEQA team in agencies and in OPM coming up with you know processes that really work to get us the people that we need. If I'm not mistaken, that was it, it, at least in part um, created by USDS, US Digital Service. It, I may be you know partially yes. wrong about that, but I, I believe it was. And I'm curious, you know, just given that you had such a a role on the early USDS team, and your book goes into USDS's foundation uh, a bit after healthcare.gov, um, you know, just give me your thoughts on the work that USDS is doing today, and um, you know what it looks like versus what you kind of envisioned. Uh, I'm not sure how long it's been now since it was started, but it's been roughly a decade. Um, you know, where's the USDS team at in comparison to what you kind of envisioned in those early days as sort of this uh, tech fix it team or this sort of user focused uh, design organization that really has revamped the way the government thinks about uh, citizen services and serving the public? That's a, SMECO is a great way to answer that question. Um, uh you said, yeah, it was a USDS project, but it was done in collaboration with GSA uh, and OPM. And, you know, they are very careful to give OPM, you know, the credit for this, that they're sort of the key partner in it. Uh, by the way, d2d.gsa.gov um, has the initial report that sort of kicked off this um this SMEQA project. So I encourage your, your listeners to go, uh, you can also just Google SMEQA. It's a pretty unique word. It'll come up. <laughs> um, but that collaboration, you know, with other departments is one of the things I'm just really glad USDS has sort of had in its initial DNA and has really kept. So, you know, USDS kind of you know, I, I came there to set it up, but like it really wasn't going anywhere. It's a story I tell in my book in chapter six until healthcare.gov failed. And we were able to sort of show more concretely what the value of that organization would be when they were able to go into CMS and help get healthcare.gov back on track. Um, I tell in the book also a lot about how while Todd Park, my boss's team, got a lot of the credit, it was really actually, you know, career civil servants like Yadira Sanchez 
at CMS who got it back on track. Um, but ultimately, you know, I think some of the initial resistance was because um, people had a perception that USDS would be like doing things for agencies instead of doing things with agencies, helping build agencies' own capacity. And so, you know, um, covidtest.gov is a good example of USDS partnering with USPS, <laughs> too many U's and S's, um, where that is, you know, that is really something USPS can claim as a huge success, a site that, you know, I think two thirds or three quarters of the, of the entire country used um, and were completely delighted by because they made great choices. They said, we're going to ask very few questions. It's, you know, going to have very few quote unquote requirements, but it's going to be scalable and accessible and delightful to use. And, you know, it was, it, USPS gets to, you know, put that in there, you know, it's a feather in their cap because it was their infrastructure that that was built on and USDS was just kind of helping out. Now that's an actual delivery project, but you look at something like Smequa or login.gov or cloud.gov or all these things where, you know, it's, it really is just helping the agencies do their job by giving them tools. So, you know, that's the thing I'm most proud of is just the way in which it's not about USDS at the end of the day. It's about the agencies getting what they need and building their own internal capacity. And I'm so proud to see the agencies doing that. That's awesome. And yeah, COVID, uh, the covidtest.gov was incredible, delightful, incredibly delightful and simple to use, which was uh, refreshing to see from a, uh, you know, outside looking in. Uh, I think it really worked. Yeah. And that's you know, a lot okay. of the same team. No, sorry, go ahead. I'm, I'm, you know, back on the topic of some of those disastrous, you know, digital or digital disasters that the, the government faced over the last decade in some regards. Is there a topic or program like those mentioned, or maybe some others from your book, uh, like some of the others from your book that the government should be thinking about today, looking forward um, that, you know, in the past, maybe you uh, healthcare.gov or something like that, it didn't think about or said another way, is there a story out there that should be getting more attention uh, that the government should be paying more attention to? I've been talking a lot about the implementation of the three big bills, uh, CHIPS infrastructure and IRA, but IRA is the one that I, I guess is, you know, closest to my heart, um, you know, for, for a lot of reasons, because, you know, climate collapse scares the bejesus out of me. Um, and, you know, I think people don't think of it as a healthcare.gov because there's not a, there's not an IRA.gov website. And so, there's nothing to sort of, you know, one thing to watch. And, you know, yes, we could be testing it earlier or something, but but there is an enormous amount of implementation in there and it's going to happen at different levels of government. And it's going to involve a lot of times some of the same things like getting the regulations nailed down in time for people to act. Like, you know, we think about healthcare.gov, the site not launching well as the problem, but like, yeah. What were the things that contributed to that problem? Well, you know, CMS had a lot of trouble getting the regulations done in time. It's really hard to build a website when you don't know what you're building for. Um, and, you know, it's very hard to move fast. Uh, I think the agencies are moving very fast, and yet the desire for them to it is to move even faster on things like that. And a lot of times it's not so much just like putting up a website as it is um, designing programs so that like design element 
you think about IRA has, you know, there's a bunch to do with industry. There's also a bunch to do with consumers. So consumers are going to get rebates or tax credits for things like heat pumps or solar. Well, we've devolved that to the states. Remember, we did that with healthcare.gov too, right? The states could choose to make their own exchanges. Um, well, in this case, we're going to have to figure out how to watch all the states and make sure that they make programs for those rebates and uh, tax credits that people actually understand and know how to use. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot, I mean, and that doesn't even touch the sort of industrial side of it, but there's a lot of what I would call implementation risk in the IRA that has a lot to do with the same balls that we generally drop that are very hard to look at. Um, so, I mean, that's really what I, where I would call people's attention to. And it's not to criticize the folks in charge. Like they are, I think, pretty much to a person working, you know, ridiculous hours and, you know, just running as fast as they can. But this is a biggie and a lot depends on it. So I, I you know, I just encourage everybody who can to just lend a hand, help out, watch closely, and remind ourselves that those implementation skills really, really are going to matter here. One topic we haven't really uh, touched that I think is just like such a part of everyday life now, at least in the conversations we have, is, is AI. Um, and I'm just mm -hmm. curious, it, just from, a, you know, now that you're on the outside of government, you're uh, looking in a bit, but uh, obviously still very well connected. But how do we grapple with AI? I think there's a lot of tension mm -hmm. from the regulatory aspect to how agencies use it, whether they're allowed to use something like a chat GPT and the security risks and things like that. Um, how do we grapple with that with also knowing we need to be able to lean into this, whether it's from a, a, a you know, a homeland perspective and, and being able to compete, compete economically or, or mm -hmm. even, you know, if it comes to actual uh, battle or, you know, conflict with China or Russia or something like that, obviously AI is going to play an element. So how do we grapple with that sort of tension of being safe and thoughtful about it while also not uh, delaying too much because we know we need this to become or, or maintain uh, economic and uh, defense viability? Well, that is a very big question. I, I had the privilege of working on the Defense Innovation Board where they were working, you know, putting together AI principles and, you know, I think to some degree, though, this is a thorny problem, it's worth remembering that we didn't start thinking about this yesterday, that there's a lot of existing law and policy that can come into play here. You don't have to, like, recreate everything because AI is new. We can understand the risks and then apply what law and policy is already on the books and go back to principles that have been written. We're just going to be learning about it every day. So we have to sort of continually refresh. Um I think one way just to sort of start demystifying it is actually to use it in sort of more mundane contexts. Um, I'll tell you a story. I was at the New Jersey Department of Labor a couple months ago uh, visiting. I, you know, a friend of mine was writing up what a great job they are doing on unemployment insurance, which is a real continues to be a real challenge across the country. And there was a designer there who had been uh, for months now, rewriting the notices that people get, like you get an email, you get a letter in the mail telling you where your status of your claim is or how to adjudicate it. And you don't really understand what it means. It's written in legalese and most people just put it aside and that causes all these problems. And uh, she'd been working with the policy people to write this in plain language and make the call, you know, the call to action big and bold. And ChatGPT comes out, she starts feeding these letters into ChatGPT. 
GPT with the prompt, help me uh, write this so that I can understand it better. And it's not that anything truly different happens because she still takes that output and plays with it and goes back to the policy people and checks. It just happens faster because she's got this assistant now. And she didn't go ask permission to do that. She just started using it. And the, the risks were very low and the reward is you know, relatively high. Um, I think it's really important that we think about examples like that in part because you know, I have this line in the book that the CMS team says when they're pushing back against really complex policy and you know regulatory frameworks that are just so confusing that they turn these you know these systems into what I call concrete boats. And she says, um, you know, I get that it's complicated. It has to make sense to a person. Well, if AI can help government make sense to a person, I am so for it. Like, let's just use it and you know don't put too much around it. Where I do worry, though, is there, you know, when we have things like, you know, crazy complex uh, policy like in UI or like in Medicare that has just accreted over the years to the point where nobody understands it. I have a story in the book about a, a claims processor who says he doesn't really know the policy governing UI yet because he's only been there for 17 years. And the folks who really know what have been there for 25 years or longer, that's a policy complexity that needs to be simplified and reduced. Mm -hmm. I get that tech people don't have always the authority to do that, but they do need to be demanding it of their policy partners. And if we say, oh, that's okay, AI can just handle that now, we will have greater and greater government that doesn't make sense to people. And I think that is really not a good long-term outcome. I would say do not use AI for that, except in sort of short-term emergencies. Let's still hold ourselves accountable to that simplification that we must work on together with our policy partners. Yeah, that's very interesting. Well, I know we're getting short on time here. I, I have two quick last questions. Um, one's a bit more topical and, and unrelated to the book, but I am curious your perspective, given that you're a former deputy CTO and we currently don't have a U.S. CTO, I, I, and I, I find that you know that there's a, a gap there, and, and that uh, it would be helpful on topics like AI or something like that. Not to say that there's not somebody sort of filling that role, but tell me about the importance, especially in working with someone like Todd Park, who was a great CTO, and why it's you know very important to have somebody in that position. Um, yeah, I think it's a bit of a miss that we didn't fill that job. I will say we've had Alexander McGillivray, who was fantastic. We now have Deirdre Mulligan in that role, also fantastic. And another uh, uh, woman from the Bay Area who I know quite well. So we do have people, I think, steering the ship there. Um, and I do think that it is ultimately a sort of inspirational and coordination role in the sense that you're trying to, you know, pull levers across the entire government and help and sort of help again, much like USDS. Ultimately, you are trying to help agencies um, and the legislative branch, you know, understand this so that they can pull their levers correctly. Um, but yeah, I think we've still got some great people. I would also, you know, remark on you look at where we have other positions filled. Fantastic federal CIO in Claire Martirana, fantastic head of GSA in Robin Carnahan. 
um, fantastic head of USDS in Mina Shang. You got Raylene Young over at the TMF. We do have a lot of leadership in this administration that are doing great things. And I think just generally up leveling everyone. That's great. So as we close out, uh, a bit of a maybe just a fun question, if you will, but you know, on the topic of the book, um, as you were researching and writing and, and interviewing people, talking to people, you know, all that it took to get to the end product, what was something you learned while doing that that you didn't already know or didn't expect? I learned that the resistance that I found when I was trying to start USDS in 2013 was, of course, not new. Um, I was really struck by this uh, research um, about the Klinger-Cohen Act in 1995 when uh, uh, those two members of Congress were proposing that that the White House, that OMB, take on digital strategy all the way back then, and that the deputy director for management at the time said, no, thank you, we don't want that, that uh, those proposed responsibilities are, quote, operational in nature and inconsistent with the policy role of this institution. And uh, when I read that, I kind of light bulbed, you know, sitting at my desk, like, oh, right, that's the same thing I was feeling is this um, this desire to, to push policy and implementation apart when I want to be pushing it together. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm glad that that is changing, um, but the roots are deep. And, and it was just fascinating to learn about, you know, that and other pieces of our history. Well, Janet, it's been fantastic chatting with you about your new book. Again, it is called Recoding America, Why Government is Failing in the Digital Age and How We Can Do Better. And Jen, if anybody's interested in learning more, where would you direct them? Uh, RecodingAmerica.us. I've got a lot of the resources that are sort of mentioned in the book, but with real links and more information. So yeah, go check it out. You can learn more about federal digital transformation efforts at thedailyscooppodcast.com. In a world where 80% of web application breaches are caused by compromised credentials, it's clear that passwords need to be replaced with more effective security methods. Passwordless authentication methods offer a faster, more secure, and hassle-free way to protect our digital lives. Imagine no longer having to remember complex passwords or worry about them falling into the wrong hands. It's a game changer for individuals and organizations alike. I'm Wyatt Cash on behalf of FedScoop, and here to talk about some of these advances and highlight some of the use cases is Sean Frazier, Federal Chief Security Officer at Okta. Sean, thanks for joining us, and welcome back to the program. Thanks, Wyatt. Always good to be with you. So I'd like to start by asking, how has the use of multi-factor authentication, or MFA, evolved, and how does Okta's Secure Sign-In Trends Report provide some, some new insights for our listeners into the state of secure sign-in practices? Yeah, it's pretty interesting. If you look at kind of the, the reason that multi-factor authentication exists, and, and it really has been almost recent that, that this has been a big focus. If you think of the history of passwords, passwords have been around since the 1960s. So over 60 years, we've been dealing with passwords. Then over the last 10 or 15 years, we've really struggled with kind of attackers and adversaries taking advantage of, of weak credentials and access to credentials. And if you think of what ha has happened over the last 10 or 15 years, it's the fact that we've been modernizing, we connected to the internet, all of our, we moved all things into the cloud. So all that modernization and digital transformation has really kind of uh, uh, acutely 
uh, affected the way that that people have access to to these credentials and attackers have access to these credentials. So the last handful of years, we've seen a market uh, kind of improvement in using multi-factor authentication to kind of augment security to to make it so the password is not the only thing that the attacker has to get to get access to your to your data. And we saw the trend. The report kind of shows a trend, which is actually kind of you know we've seen this kind of happen, kind of intrinsically felt this, but. You know, prior to the pandemic, it was a slow, steady uptick of multi-factor authentication. And then when the pandemic hit, it was a market faster increase in multi-factor authentication because everyone was working from home, everyone was teleworking. So everyone had, you know, access to their data remotely as well as the attackers. So businesses kind of looked at that and said, yeah, we need this kind of compensating control for passwords. And that's where we're going to be doing multi-factor authentication. Well, um, talk about what are what other key findings of the report um, did you see regarding the actual adoption of MFA that um, agencies and businesses should pay attention to? So we've seen MFA adoption accelerate over the last couple of years, as I just talked about. So that's been an important trend. We've also seen that you know one of the things that comes along with that naturally is that people kind of look at the what is the end user experience of multi-factor authentication. And in a lot of cases, it's not great because when you're doing is you're forcing the user to do yet another thing to log in. So there's been a little bit of user friction. So because of that, we've also seen the acceleration to using passwordless techniques. So that way you kind of get the best of both worlds where you get the stronger security and, ac and access management, but you also get the better user experience. So it's almost like we've seen the acceleration of MFA requirement for the connected world we live in. And we've also seen because MF MFA has been accelerated, we've seen user friction, which has also accelerated passwordless, which is actually kind of cool. Well, let's talk practicals for a minute. What steps should organizations take to improve their overall security posture and ensure um, sign-in practices across their systems? Well, I think a lot of those, especially if we kind of think about the world that I live in with public sector, a lot of the guidance has been kind of pointing us in that direction. So if you look at kind of the cyber cybersecurity strategy, the five pillars of cybersecurity strategy, the, the protecting assets and information uh, talks a lot about this. If you look at OMB guidance and M2209, it talks a lot about this, but some of the guidance is, you know, moving to a centralized single sign-on capability. So getting all your applications behind a secure um, authentication uh, system, um, utilizing strong phishing resistant multi-factor authentication. And that can come in, in a couple different forms. It can come in, in the form of a built-in platform authenticator. So a lot of times you kind of get it with the, the, the technology you buy. So whether it be a MacBook or whether it be an iPhone, a lot of these technologies are kind of built in. And you can also get it with what I consider legacy technology. So you can also wire in kind of your, your common access card or your PIP card into this into this equation as well. But but again, kind of you know bringing that into kind of the modern signal sign-on world. So you can you can kind of bridge the gap between some of the legacy things and some of the modern things that are coming out. And can you share some success stories or case studies of organizations that have effectively implemented uh, secure sign-in practices? And which sign-in methods uh, have you seen are offering the sort of highest phishing resistance and also, you know, provide the fastest and most reliable user experience? Yeah, the most successful organizations that I've seen have been the ones that have kind of embraced the journey. And what I mean by that is embrace the journey between the legacy world they're living in with the PIV card and the smart cards that we've had for the last 20 years and marrying that up to what's coming out from the platform providers. So phishing resistant uh, FIDO authenticators, for example. So if you look at pass keys, 
um, being able to kind of have a technology that kind of sits in the middle that, that ends up being the glue between those, those two capabilities is key. And then looking at your applications holistically and saying, okay, where, where are my high value targets? Where are my mid value targets? Where are my low value targets? And making sure you're going from, from left to right and making sure all those applications are behind that secure single sign-on capability. And, and I think that's one of the things that most organizations have really done a good job over the last 18 months of doing is, is really looking at their applications holistically and building them into this centralized identity model. And then lastly, do you foresee we're finally reaching a threshold, if you will, for a more widespread shift towards passwordless authentication approach in the future? And what factors might influence this transition? Yeah, I'm, I'm feeling it. So over the last 12 months, I've seen really kind of felt this and seen this accelerate uh, again along the lines of providing those strong phishing resistant factors, um, the, the platform providers, so Apple, Google, Microsoft, so the world building this in, into the platforms that they're providing. Um, there's been a big push for that. And we've seen that come from, from industry. We've seen that come from government. We've seen a lot of organizations kind of taking stock and figuring out, okay, well, what's the, what's the next leg of this journey? We've had the the smart cards for the last 20 years, what, are the, what does the next 20 years look like? And I've seen a, a rapid acceleration of that. And the good news for that is, is that we're seeing very strong user adoption because we're removing a lot of friction. So users are getting a much better user experience and they're getting much better security in the bargain. And as security practitioners, we don't always get to say that. That's a great point because uh, user experience has always been one of the uh, kind of uh, roadblocks, if you will, to implementing some of these things. And if this really helps not only make them more secure, but improves the user experience, that's uh, it's a win-win for everybody. Absolutely. Well, Sean Frazier, thank you, as always, for joining us and sharing some of your insights and some of this fresh information about the uh, uh, Okta Secure Sign-In Trends Report that we've mentioned, and we'll have a link to that in our show notes. So thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Always great to chat with you. You can learn more about multi-factor authentication on fedscoop.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all podcast platforms. If you've already rated the podcast on your platform of choice, thanks so much. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people to find it. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher help put the show together and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. We'll be back next week with brand new episodes. Until then, I'm your host, Billy Mitchell. Thanks so much for listening.